Shame. 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 I'm so sorry for our question of the week on the last episode, guys. We um, we all failed to to acknowledge uh, the man, the myth, the legend, the mustache, Mister Wilford Brimley. Yeah, how could we forget that one? That mustache—it's cloud-like. I want to. I want to sleep in that mustache. I want to curl up with it and. You use said it that about this mustache. That's a weird thing, Greg. It's a nice mustache. It looks cozy. It's chilly here. Anyway, we apologize. You are listening to the Give Me Five podcast, episode number 108. This is the Give Me Five podcast, a semi-entertaining show about very entertaining things. We talk about pop culture, nostalgia, movies, and music. And occasionally other things. My name is Jimmy, and I am joined by Rob. I got some things to say, and you people are going to hear about it. And Greg. Rob has some things to say, and I'll let him speak for me. (laughs) That's never a good idea. Later on, we are very pleased to have back on the show returning guest, author, and all-around swell guy, C.S. Umble. In addition to talking to C.S. Umble this week about his new collection of horror stories, Minotaur, he has requested that we discuss 1987's He-Man epic, Masters of the Universe. Also, guys, uh, because we are big Star Wars nerds, at the end of the show... (laughs) Well, okay, okay, hold on, wait. This is Greg, coming to you from the future, whereas this was recorded in the past. This episode was kind of long. Our Mandalorian Minute is actually going to be a separate special episode for all you Star Wars nerds. And in that special episode, you will actually even hear a little bit of argument between our guest, C.S. Umble, and our resident picky host, Rob. So stay tuned. Check out that other episode if you want. If you're worried about spoilers for Masters of the Universe, you could probably don't have to worry about it. Yeah, Especially just if you're a big He-Man fan, because it is nothing to do with He-Man at watch all. It. Yeah. So. Consider yourself warned. Yeah. So, uh, news? I've got a little bit of local news, guys. Ooh. You could consider this floor news if you'd like. However, it's not weird shit. It's something I think is very, very exciting, guys. Today, um, November 20th, is the date of this recording, Mr. Pat Williams, co-founder of the Orlando Magic, announced his, uh, I'd say, second attempt at bringing professional baseball to the city of Orlando. Now, the working name as of right now is the Orlando Dream. 
you can go to Orlando, I'm sorry, the Orlando Dreamers, orlandodreamers.com, express your interest in bringing Major League Baseball to the city beautiful, and we will see where we go from there, Orlando. Let's do it. Actually, I think I like the Orlando Dream better than the Orlando Dreamers. Wow, this is inter- this is interesting. Now, I don't think we can do this now because we have already done the interview. Mm-hmm. So we're recording in the wrong order, and I don't think we're going to have time on this. But Orlando has a very bad habit of giving a shit ton of taxpayer dollars to rich dudes that shouldn't get it. And we Florida also has two baseball teams that don't make any money. So I have concerns. I'm, I'm, I like baseball. I like going to the ballpark. But I have concerns because we already or the Marlins don't make any money and the Rays don't make any money. And Orlando is a much smaller city. And the Rays have actually been good. Yeah. So I'm torn. I'm not. I already got a great idea. Look, the the Rays have no attendance. They're talking about splitting games this season between here and Montreal just because they can't put assets in seats. Guys, if you're going to split uh games between a city in Florida and anywhere else it's got to be Orlando and Brazil guys this is not going to just be Orlando's hometown team this is going to be the national baseball team of Brazil think about it it's gold look what is the ballpark every ballpark has a shtick look let's put a roller coaster in ours Okay, what are we going to serve at our ballpark? They they can't get anywhere else. Turkey legs, freeze pops. Turkey legs and churros, man. How could it go wrong? There's so many ways. Do the right thing. Go to OrlandoDreamers.com. Express your interest. There's this. If this happens, there's no way this doesn't cost us money. But they probably funded Exploria Stadium. Yeah. Well, well, that is actually interesting. I'm going to watch that news very closely however there's speaking of news that's going to cost me money uh our best episode our one that had the most listeners do you guys remember which one that was was it the dirt it was it was the dirt episode as a result of the dirt through fans out there yeah yeah as a result of the dirt uh, there's been so many young Motley Crue fans that have been formed. I mean, their album actually, I think the soundtrack to that hit number one or something on streaming. Motley Crue has ripped up their contract that said that they would not tour, the cessation of touring contract that all four of them signed. They ripped it up. They have a little video of it, which is hosted by uh, the dude that played Tommy Lee with Machine Gun Kelly. There's a little video of them blowing it up, actually. Uh, the contract. They are set to tour again. Motley Crue is coming back. They are doing a tour this summer with Poison and Def Leppard. Hmm. Which should actually be an interesting show. Now, the weird thing is, Motley Crue and Poison have never toured together. Which is crazy to me that they haven't. Poison and Def Leppard actually did a sold-out tour last year, I believe. Uh... So all three of these bands, the three three of the top-selling bands of the 80s, the hard rock slash glam slash whatever you want to call them bands. Uh, make a lot more money. 
Yeah, so that is very interesting. Nikki Six did reiterate in February that the group has no plans to reform, but he also expressed doubts. He's like, I look at my friends like Eisen, Aerosmith, Metallica, and I'm like, God damn it, did we retire too soon? Uh, but there's going to be no one-offs in our future. We're just going to get together if we want to play and jam in Mick Mars's front room. No more. The money talked, and I will probably be there. Maybe at the Orlando's new baseball stadium. But it is a, a arena tour, too, so it's a big tour. They're not doing clubs. Not that they would, but, you know. So that's kind of interesting. Speaking of other things that were not supposed to happen that will, the Joker has crossed $1 billion. Therefore, it is going to get a sequel, even though... They Todd specifically Phillips. said there was not going to be a sequel. Yes, and but Todd Phillips is attached to it, but $1 billion talks, I kind of understand that I do not. And as long as all the original people are involved with it, uh, that movie has sat with me. Uh, yeah. so Jimmy, it's It has gotten better. I, I liked it to begin with, but it has gotten better as I thought more about it. Money talks, man. Yeah. So, well... Now we're going to introduce our guest. Ladies and gentlemen, it is my pleasure to welcome back to the show, Mr. C.S. Umble. Thank you for joining us. Mm. Yes, welcome back. Thank you so much, Jimmy. Thank you all so much for having me. I appreciate it. How long has it been? I believe it's been 14 months, if I had to guess. 14? Has it? Mm. I believe wow. so. <laughs> it sounds about right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, well, thank you. So much. For... I wasn't sure if that was a test or <laughs> <I don't> know. <laughs> going through the broken Rolodex in my head. So, uh, first of all, my very first question for you right off the bat here. Uh, last time you were on, you enjoyed a nice glass of scotch before the episode. Mm. Did you have one again? Uh, right now. And I'm... if so, what? Oh, there I, we go. Yeah, tonight I'm having a delicious uh, glass of bourbon. Uh, Excellent. The uh, Evan Williams 100 proof uh, bond, uh, bottled and bond. And it is, uh, let me just get a little sip here. Just... Mm. It's everything you hope it would be. Everything. Excellent. This interview is uh, brought to you by Evan Williams. <laughs> a new sponsor. I'd be completely sponsor. okay. I'd be okay with that. <laughs> totally fine with that. That sounds like a furniture company. <laughs> Come true. on down to Evan Williams and get yourself a brand new love seat. There you go. <laughs> we throw in just sconces for free. Smell the leather. Exactly. So how have you been, my friend, since the last time we talked? Uh, I've been great. I've been riding up a storm uh, since the last time we talked. I've written two novels and a novella. Uh, or excuse me, not. Well, I did write a novella, but it's uh, not out in any capacity. And I did a short story collection, which is a horror collection that uh, just recently got published on Amazon through Kindle Direct Publishing. Uh, on October the 21st. So I've been a busy boy. That's fantastic. I have had a chance to read your collection of horror, sir. Mm. I believe that's what we'll uh, we'll focus on here for uh, a small part of our interview. And that would be Minotaur, a collection of horror, which, as you said, is available through Amazon. Now, can you tell me what that process is like? Uh, the So... I uh, had a publisher. Uh, mm -hmm. We got into a, a conversation that the publisher did not enjoy when it came to contract negotiation. Mm. Uh, and so uh, I moved away from that publisher. I retook the rights back to the Massacre at Yellow Hill, and I've 
it is as of right now published in its second edition with a brand new cover and revisions to the original manuscript. Um, so how Kindle uh, Direct Publishing works is you uh, take your manuscript, you use their, uh, they have a software called Kindle Create, where you go in and format everything the way that you want it. You choose between a small selection of uh, typeface and font choices. You break everything up using the software. And then when you're all finished with everything, you download it into a, uh, a file format that Kindle Direct Publishing recognizes uh, through their online uh, platform. You uh, publish it there. You put your cover on it. Uh, get your ISB or excuse me, um, yeah, ISBN uh, squared away, and then uh, you hit publish, and it goes out into the ether, uh, where the uh, Google overlords uh, and Amazon overlords look it over. And uh, make sure that it doesn't have anything in it it's not supposed to have. And then it goes directly up on the Amazon Marketplace. Just out of sheer curiosity, do you set the price on that? You are able to set the price, uh, which okay. is really great because I'm able to uh, discount the book for what I think it's worth and not what I think a publisher is willing to charge to try and cover profit margins. Gotcha. And I will uh, say Minotaur is uh, at a very comfortable 99 cents. <laughs> or if you are a, a subscriber to Kindle Unlimited, it is yours for free. Mm -hmm. So really, there is no reason not to get this collection, in my opinion. I completely agree with you, Jimmy, as it turns out. <laughs> <laughs> Very, very reasonably priced, in fact. And, and you know, if if you're looking for something to, to do for, for a little bit and, you know, a dollar is really not going to hit that hard. So it's 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 worth it, even it, even if you end up not liking it. I mean, so far, I'm enjoying it. I haven't quite finished it yet, but I, I am enjoying what I've read so far. I'm so glad to hear that, Rob, of the universe. <laughs> I I did have one question for you though, but we'll mm -hmm. get we'll get to that in a little bit. Okay. There, there's so much there's so much to unpack here going yeah. through all this stuff, and uh, I'm going to go back yet again to something you said. Uh, you said that the Google and Amazon overlords look to see if there's something that shouldn't be there. Correct. What shouldn't be there? Um. So they are we, are we talking uh, like crazy story points and stuff. I don't know that that's it. I, my guess is that they have an, an algorithm that searches for, uh, you know, undesirable stuff. Um, probably things that are, uh, hardcore content. Gotcha. Um, things that really don't deserve. Well, I don't want I want to be careful with that. Things that typically people don't want in their fiction. Um, and so you want, and so I think it's probably to also make sure that nothing is plagiarized because I bet that algorithm runs your copy against pretty much every other mm. text document okay. in the universe, mm -hmm. just to make gotcha. sure that it is ah, your work. Nice tie-in, like the <laughs> the uh, yeah, the first two pages are a are a crime novel, but the rest of it is really hardcore porn. We didn't, <laughs> I tried to slip it by, but. <laughs> Right, that's 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 my model is to get you with the occult detective horror and then pull yeah. you in for a grim, dark, pornographic uh, massacre that takes place in the latter half of the 
collection. Yeah, one of the well, one of the reasons why I kind of asked is my sister in law has done an, a publishing thing. I'm not sure what she published through. However, her book is okay. Th- I'm not kidding about this. It is a superhero story mm. that involves time travel, mm. the Holocaust, mm. and a whole lot of hardcore sex. <laughs> This segment brought to you by the Holocaust. Yeah. yeah. Right. No, which, uh... which it's, you know, it's, she's, it's, it's an interesting story. It's, it's a three book series. I, we're not here to sell her book, but I was just wondering like <laughs> what their standards are because it got through. Mm-hmm. So. And, and I would also like to ask, because I think I got the wrong copy of the book because mine has not had any of the pornographic material yet. And I would mm-hmm. like that copy. Yeah. The can special I, I edition, the special edition will be mailed out directly to you via oh, oh, Amazon awesome. yes. drone. <laughs> <laughs> uh, fully upgraded with targeting software. I'm assuming. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, without actually question. launch the book directly at you in bullet form. Precisely. Excellent. Excellent. In the form of a hellfire missile. It'll be great. You'll love it. Sounds like a fun time. Now, now Jimmy has a bunch of actual serious questions. Okay. Um, and now, and he's going to take back over. Sorry, Jimmy. That's quite all right, Greg. The way you are shaking your head in the camera means it's not. <laughs> <laughs> he is totally fuming on the inside. <laughs> Always. Now, you mentioned the occult detective horror. Can you give us a brief uh, description of the book? That is Minotaur, a collection of horror. Uh, Yeah, so Minotaur is a collection of four stories. The first story is... uh, uh, Jesus, what is the first story? I just forgot. So the, the four stories are First Date in Blackwell's. Uh, or that's the the last book. I'm going to go in reverse order because I don't even know my own freaking book. The, the uh, first story, A Holy Superior Creature. All right, A Holy Superior Creature, right, uh, which is, a uh, which is an, like you said, an occult detective uh, yarn that I'm really happy with. Uh, the second one is sort of uh, dark science fiction. It, it, it meets horror, um, but it's more dark science fiction. I'm really proud of that one, too. Uh, and then you have Rig Move, which is uh, cosmic horror. Um, and then you have uh, First State and Blackwell's, which I can't – I don't want to say too much about that because it's a uh, – it's not exactly – if I give you the genre, you may see the punch coming, which I don't want to yeah, do. I completely understand that. Um, so I'm, I'm going to do my best here when we're talking about these, and, and we'll keep it brief for each one mm-hmm. because – you know, each each story is brief, mm-hmm. um, and and saying too much would would give it away. Um, so the the first story, a holy superior creature. Now, I I listened to these stories. Um, I listened to a holy superior creature probably four times, whether it was uh, getting interrupted at work or um, I found this great feature on my android device Mm. when i say hopefully uh nothing picks up in the background but if i say alexa read minotaur um it will either start reading the book oh there it goes (laughs) alexa she's always listening it will either do that and read me 
the book from where it left off, or it will play Minotaur by one of my favorite bands in the world, Clutch. <laughs> oh, so either way, okay. you win. You're yeah. winning, obviously. It's like, I didn't know they made a song called Minotaur. So I was really excited about that. A holy superior creature involves uh, the occult detective story. And I wanted to ask you specifically about this one. If mm-hmm. there were, without giving too much away, what kind of research um, goes into um, these stories, this one specifically? So do you I'm, watch a lot of true crime? Uh, I do. Uh, I do enjoy true crime. Um, I was pretty deeply influenced by a few different books uh, during my more formative years uh, when I was becoming a writer. One of them was John Douglas's Mindhunter, uh, which the Netflix series is based upon. Uh, it's about his okay. life uh, becoming a, a criminal profiler, um, what that process looked like. I'm also, uh, I was, uh, the works of Joe R. Lansdale, uh, which I don't, I don't know if y'all are familiar with his work. He's, uh, he's effectively the East Texas version of William Faulkner. If William Faulkner were like a drunken uncle who was uh, like telling you stories in a rocking chair on your porch, um, he has a lot of really great stories. Um he has one called The Night Runners, uh, which is uh, tremendous. Uh, folks may have seen his work on Sundance TV. Uh, he is the author behind the Hap and Leonard series that's now on Netflix. Um, he has this really tremendous story um, called Leather Maiden, which is uh, so it's a, a the uh, it's not a detective, but it's a detective novel. Uh, but it's an, an investigative journalist who uncovers a seedy group of weird ass people, which is great. Um, but in terms of research, um, I've always been, I've always had a really deep interest in the occult um, from a mythology standpoint, you know, reading the mm-hmm. lesser key of Solomon, the works of Aleister Crowley and reading about all the, you know, ancient Mesopotamian Babylonian deities and the cults that used to follow those. Um, you know, I've just always found a, I always found it deeply satisfying to mix in weird shit, uh, into, uh, uh, stories to try and unnerve people. Cause I think at a, at a base level, we're afraid of gr- uh, collective groups of people who want to murder us. Um, I am. Speak for yourself, <laughs> sir. I think Speak. that's a reasonably healthy fear. <laughs> right. And so when What's that this? when that belief system is fate is uh based in something that's um old and powerful and dangerous, um it seems like uh that has always you know, people have loved occult detective stories, you know, detectives that get in over their head and that as it turns out, things were not what they seem. You know, Lovecraft made a uh, a career off of, you know, suggesting that there were these ancient cults that knew about forbidden lore. And so I just wanted to get a little bit of piece of that and put it in this little yarn that I have. Now, you mentioned Joe R. Lansdale, and uh, I'm familiar with Joe, Joe Lansdale's uh, writing uh, for Bubba Hotep. Oh yeah, which is mm. a criminally underrated uh, story. It is absolutely uh, frequently mentioned on our lists. On your always. list, yeah, yeah, always mine. Yet never covered. We need to maybe do that next time. Yeah, absolutely. 
And uh, certainly I think you do a great job of, of writing a, a likable detective who um, maybe does get in over his head a little bit in mm-hmm. dealing with some certain situations uh, without going too, too deeply into that. Do you gentlemen have any questions about the, uh, about the first story, a Holy Spirit creature? Without I actually do. Sure. I, I did as well. What's going on in that story? <laughs> Do you have a list of clever descriptions? Because I very much enjoy the uh, clacking of the muscles mm. under a dock description, and it was very, it was vivid, and I enjoyed it. And I, I just, you know, there's, there's quite a few little descriptions in that one. Yeah, that I was like, oh, that, yeah, you, yeah. you nailed that sound. I used to. Uh... One of the things I used to do in my earlier years, and I still do it sometimes, is I would try to over-describe a sound because I'm like, oh, man, I really need the reader to hear this. I need them to be scared shitless about something. Um, And so I found that, um, you know, Mark Twain has this great uh, quote where he says, the difference between the right word and the almost right word is the difference between the lightning bug and the lightning bolt. And so I've I've tried very hard to distill down language so that it's the right word because you could say lots of things about muscles on a dock but if you've actually you know but when you've been on one you can always hear that little uh that little plinking sound and you're like what in the hell is that and you oh it's the muscles that's what that is so uh i don't have like a description bible <laughs> uh to put it that way uh but i i do uh whenever i'm doing the initial first draft i'm pretty well concentrated into where i'm living out the scene and so the descriptions those are just kind of things that come to me in the moment so my question (laughs) relates specifically to the to the first story because i i felt like i had missed something there was Mm -hmm. and i know that jimmy jimmy listened to it um so maybe maybe he blew past it the first time but as i was reading it there was a section that I had to read multiple times and I had to go back because I'm like, who is he talking to? I, I was like, is there a third person in the room? And it's it's the scene where the detective is in the chief of police office mm-hmm. and he's talking to him and the, and the chief is telling him he's got to go talk to his old partner or whatever. But mm-hmm. he wants him to go talk to the priest first. Um, he keeps calling the chief Sarge, which yeah. I was like. Is he taught? Is that his nickname for him, or because I I totally missed that, and I ended up having to reread that section like three or four times because I couldn't figure out who he was talking to. Right. Uh, so I actually have. Um, so the chief of police's rank is sergeant. Uh-huh. The uh, okay administrative title is chief. You know the chief of detectives, but his actual okay. rank is that he is a sergeant. Okay, yeah. that's what I didn't get. I didn't. <laughs> I actually didn't know that, mm. and that's and that's that was why I was confused because I'm like, who the hell is he talking to? I, who, this, who, the, the who the hell is, is who, who the hell is the chief? Rob is our picky watcher, viewer, listener, reader. I I, I tend to be. Yeah, I'm glad we could clear that up. Anybody who's reading the book, if you're listening to this now, uh, just blow past it. Just get past that section because it's effectively exposition. Okay. <laughs> so that was the first story. Jimmy, you wanted to ask questions about the second 
story. Yeah. Have Alexa read it to you. That's that's a lot of fun. Aha. <laughs> uh-huh. There's my girl. What? Uh, so uh, yeah, definitely the uh, the next the next one I think for me was the most um, kind of pulse pounding, um, mm-hmm. action packed. Um, one certainly with um, shades of uh, Last Player Fighter. Um, I, I wouldn't say so much Ready Player One as that that book. I think was a complete crock. But, uh, <laughs> I meant uh, the situation, not the actual. Sure, story. the situation maybe uh, even a little War Games. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Picturing the the person kind of connecting and and sitting in front of uh, a screen. Basically, uh, we're dealing with uh, esports um, on a different and deeper level. I, I would you say that's accurate? Without question. Um, so I share your sentiment about Ready Player One. And so in my head, when I when I saw the film and read the book. Ernest Klein is the author for those of the people who want to avoid that book. Um, uh, I wanted to do a story that I felt like everything I wanted ready player one to be. And sure. typ- typically I write things a little, I'm more of a visceral visceral writer. Um, and so I just, I thought that esports is becoming such a popular thing that ultimately it'll go the way of, you know, cage fighting. Um, everybody wants to, see stakes raised all the time and uh, with esports i felt like well we're in the future let's throw them into this uh, uh simulated universe and then dial all the violence up to about 10 mm. yeah absolutely uh this is well you know it's it's hard for me to say which uh which story out of here i think played out visually for me um as vividly but you know this one certainly did um i i had the feeling of when i saw um luke flying in uh the first time to uh destroy the death star mm-hmm. in a way and there's a um i can't say that no that gives too much away now there is a uh, there is a, a wonderful line here um i'm Are actually at it right now rob why don't you go ahead because this is something that we actually touched on the previous episode is um is it the one that i'm thinking of the thing that i always rail on yes oh thank you i i wish you had predicted it many years before you actually (laughs) did but the fact that you predicted ea losing the the exclusive rights to the star wars franchise by i think it was 2036 36 yes Makes me super happy because <laughs> EA sucks. Uh, right. And I've said that in, on numerous occasions, and I, I would love for them to lose the Star Wars license, but it's good to know that it'll eventually happen. It will happen. 2036. <laughs> put it down in your calendars, folks. Now there, We have been known to predict things that have, that have occurred. It's super weird, too, because we'll talk about something, uh, and then like two weeks yeah. later, they'll be like, oh, we're redoing this. And it's like, what? What? Like yeah. Jimmy single-handedly is bringing back Night of the was it Night of the Creeps. That's not no. It is Jimmy. <laughs> I, hey. Listen, I I'd, I'd love to, but just take credit um, for it, Jimmy. 
Sure. Okay. I'm going to take credit for that if it ever does happen. Um, Greg, you mentioned um, the very kind of descriptive um, sound effects. Descriptions. Um, <laughs> Onomatopoeia, as it were. I, I think that's just something that you do so beautifully. Um, Thank you. Very I, much. I commend you, sir. Um, going back to the massacre at Yellow Hill, you create some very interesting classes in this story. And it uh, it certainly feels like something. Uh, the subject of this is is something I could see playing. I could see myself playing. Right. Um, this is very relatable. Um, and there's a story within the story there, which I I I will let people uh, find out about themselves. And at this this story, uh, I think also something I wanted to mention is e- each story has a different tone. Mm-hmm. Um whether it's it's a different setting and now i i say i you know i had alexa read this to me so i have that <laughs> one voice right reading so, it wait, so it was the different tone by design yeah. um yeah without or question. by accident yeah okay. so the first uh the first two stories are told in first person narration um mm-hmm. and then the uh, second story or excuse me the third story is it's told in a uh uh, a conversational style, um, so sort of an omniscient narration where effectively the characters, the two characters in the story are just going back and it's an interview. Um, yeah. And so there is there is no descriptive prose. Every, I mean, there are a few movements that, you know, blocking that the characters have to move around the room. Um, but I wanted to write a story in, uh, talk, in talking about rig move. Um, I wanted to write a story to, cause I was working on trying to get my dialogue better. And the best way to do that is to write a story that is only dialogue where you have to tell the story through the, through the mouth of a particular person. And so I decided to tell the story through this West Texas, uh, roughnecker, uh, who was working on oil field locations. Hmm. And then the third one is, uh, it's done third person, third person limited. Uh, so, you know, it's, uh, you know, the character did this and then she went and did this and then this happened. And so it's more of a traditional third person narrative. But, yeah, all the tones are intentional. They're all because um, uh, I wanted people to get little slices of vignettes or not really vignette, but little slices of horror from different perspectives. Um, and Jimmy, like you were saying with. um, um not a holy superior creature, but uh, there is only the hunt. Yes. Um, that one, I wanted to write from a perspective of an agent who are the worst people in the world, uh, except for the president. Political statement, apologies. Uh, but um, but yeah, I think agents are absolutely, uh, you know, their job is effectively that they are a shark, and they're they're there's always sure. ch- there's always chum in the water, and they're always hungry for more. Um, and and so I wanted to write from a perspective of this asshole who you absolutely would not like, but you would like, uh, his, um, the player that's underneath him, who he represents. Yeah. And it, it sounds, uh, you know, I, I think, um, I think the worst person in baseball is Scott Boris, Mm -hmm. uh, super (laughs) agent Scott Boris, um, 
and and this is while well, I kind of picture a younger version of that here, mm-hmm. I think that I think um, there's only the hunt is the story that's best read with attitude. So one hundred percent, it's meant to be read angry. Yeah, watch something that pisses you off. Read something. <laughs> you know, read about the Astros twenty seventeen. You know, complete cheat season. <laughs> Uh, uh, you know, um, no. that, that currently got me disgusted. But uh, you can think about the fact that Rob hates baseball together. If that makes Rob's sense, like, and, and Billy Joel, yeah. Um, yeah, Rob's the communist. Obviously, uh, rig move. Uh, you you started to get into that is probably the story um, of the four in here that left me wanting more. Um, I think it's the most, um, cosmically horror based. Um, and you know, we, we talked about massacre at yellow Hill and that was certainly, uh, in, in the cosmic horror vein. Now these are are not the same story, of course, but this is the one where, (laughs) uh, when the ground opens up, I said, Oh, fuck. oh. you know, that, <laughs> right. That was, mm-hmm. So that was for me the most claustrophobic and unnerving right. um, of the stories. So the, the interesting thing about for those people who've read the massacre, yellow Hill, and for people who read rig move, um, those two stories, uh, are linked to the same universe and they are happening almost effectively at the same location. <laughs> and, so, and so that makes Jimmy very excited. It does. Right. For the listeners out there, remember we can see each other now as we're talking and Jimmy just put his two fists in the air and did a, um, a happy dance. Uh, yeah. I would say, I would say that qualifies as a happy dance. Yes. Thank you. Uh, I'm very, very pleased with myself. At, <laughs> Making that connection, uh, I could see those existing in the same world, and and rig move might have been the one where I, I started reading first. And I say reading, <laughs> where Alexa started reading it to me first, and I was like, oh, well, you know, this might not be my favorite in here, but uh, it it turned out to be. So, uh, written from a a very you know different perspective, man. All all four of these really are. Uh, and that brings us to. Um, the story that I think we'll talk about the least because it would be so very easy to give away. <laughs> right. Um, mm, uh, is this the, the shortest story? Uh, first date in Blackwell's um, is the shortest story in the collection. Uh, it's meant to be uh, the left hook to the body you don't see coming. Mm. Um, and so that's why I ended I ended the anthology on that book because I wanted, I wanted the, to leave the reader with, uh, um, to feel like they'd taken a punch they didn't expect. Sure, it's um, if if anyone out there has ever watched two episodes of season one of True Detective back to back, I think you're going to walk away with this with the uh, the same feeling. It's it's uh it's an effective feeling i think an, an intentional feeling um 
that you you have certainly left me with um it's uncomfortable good Let, yeah yeah stories are supposed to make us uncomfortable well, uh, you know short stories uh, horror is at its best i feel at least from my perspective when it leaves us with something to chew on or a feeling of like that that can't be the way that the world is um mm -hmm. And so, yeah, it leaves us asking questions and, and I, to touch, to touch back on what you said about rig move, a, a lot of things that people say about my, like I, I get on a, on a lot of my reviews is I just wish there were more. And, uh, and I, and I, and I get that. And so the, the sequel to the massacre of yellow hill, which is in its final, excuse me, which is in its final, uh, edits that I have. Is, uh, we have a Jimmy fist pump. <laughs> yeah, go along with that. Big um, fan. I'm not. I'm not blowing smoke up your ass. So the <laughs> ma the Masquerade Yellow Hill has a sequel that is currently being reviewed by an agent uh, who is looking to represent the book potentially, which is why it hasn't been released yet. Um, but it is uh, the sequel to the Masquerade Yellow Hill, and it it catches up to our characters uh, three years later. Um, and it's book two in the Survivors mm -hmm. trilogy, um, and it's the title is The Red Kingdom. That's right, three, three, three books three. in this trilogy, which is a part of a larger uh, universe that will continue on. Uh, but first, we have to get through um, the first three stories. But I think people are really going to like The Red Kingdom. Um, it is about a hundred pages longer than A Massacre of Yellow Hill. Um, Wonderful. Because uh, everybody was like, "Well, I really like this book. It's just it's 186 pages, and I just want more for my, I want more bang for my buck." And I get that. Uh, and I was really learning how to write a novel with the Massacre Yellow Hill, which is why it feels like two novellas squished together at, at the third act. Um, mm -hmm. But the Red Kingdom goes; uh, it does more. It builds on the universe more, and we get we get a revisitation from one of our favorite characters from the original. Um, Sigurd of Antioch, um, with the nightly vampire as he takes center stage. I can't wait for that. <laughs> Do you, now you said it's in the final stages and an agent is currently reviewing the, how does your, uh, when self-published are, are you the editor, the proofreader, the publisher, uh, it, it certainly sounds like you're the, you know, artist of even from, you know, choosing the font. Mm -hmm. I mean, it, it, when self-publishing, do you do everything yourself? So I am a great first draft writer. I'm a pretty okay. Uh, I'm a good editor from story perspective. I am not a good line editor. Uh, and so I have um, an editor that I trust uh, who goes through everything and says, hey, you know, we got some we got some issues here. I know we I know you love commas, but the world can run out of them if you keep using them at this pace. Oh, I uh, <laughs> know. Aren't we all between you and myself? I know. And so uh, so I had so I do the of course, I do all the writing um, and then I do the I'll I'll whenever I finish a manuscript, I put it, I put it away for about a month and I work on something else. And then I come back to it. I redraft the whole thing, figure out character arcs and inconsistencies that I'll find. Uh, but also giving it that amount of space allows me to say, okay, this is what happened, but 
is this what should have happened? Um, Cause I made a few missteps in the initial draft and I had to go back and change certain things that happened so that things would make a little bit more narrative sense. Um, but, but uh, so originally the massacre of Yellow Hill was, you know, it wasn't self-published. Um, it was published by a small press um, and it saw great reviews, good success for a debut novel, uh, won the Pencraft Award for um, supernat- uh, Fiction Supernatural. Thank you so much. I appreciate that. Awesome. Um, Excellent. And, uh, and so on the back of that, I decided that because uh, the goal for me is always to be the full-time, the full-time writing gig, which is the goal of most every author uh, that only about 2% of us ever reach. Um, mm-hmm. and, uh, so the only way to get to that life is to get an agent, um, unless you have tremendous self-publishing success and then you get picked up by a publisher. Um, but yeah, I, I do pretty much everything except the line edit. Um, I'll go back, fix those things. And then, uh, if the agent passes on the novel, then I'll release it probably by the end of the year. Um, and if the agent decides to go with it, then they shop it around to major publishers to see if anybody wants to pick up the whole trilogy. Certainly, fingers crossed for that, my friend. Yeah, yeah, you uh, and me both. I, yeah, I, I'm. Uh, do we have any kind of release date? Um, for the Red Kingdom, if the agent passes on it, uh, probably December, January. Um, January is a big month for book releases. Um, so I'd, there'd be quite a bit of, uh, competition there, but, uh, you know, I think that, uh, I had a really, I've had a really solid following, uh, from the folks on the subreddit, uh, slash our horror and slash mm-hmm. our fantasy. And those people have been very supportive, um, in buying the book. And, uh, so I've got a little cottage industry there, maybe pay a light bill or okay. two sometime in the future. Uh, but yeah. It's a couple of podcasters that are fans. Mm, also, I, I can't I can't help but say thank you to the gentleman at the Give Me Five podcast. The Give Me Five podcast, the best podcast this side of the Mississippi. We have a new show opener. <laughs> Actually, I'm pretty sure, apart from the other awards you mentioned, I think the year that the book came out, I'm pretty sure Jimmy made it his best book of the year because we do a year-end show. Jimmy! With, like, favorite book. All that stuff. I'm pretty sure, if I remember correctly, that he did. And you were in my top five. I'm in the top five books released. Guys, this is how dreams start. This is how dreams start. <laughs> so I, I got a question. Sure, go ahead. You, you you burned off a few short stories, and you, of course, have the other the other book on its way. Mm-hmm. Um, how many unfinished stories do you have out there floating around? Like is that is that chart on your back wall story ideas? Uh, well, on your on your you mirror, you are there, you are currently reading the illegible. So every single line you see there represents a story that I have yet to write. It is blurry, so I'm not actually able to see it. Right, I could tell, I could tell that it no was spoilers. Uh, but but what you're what you're looking at there is uh, I have a uh, I have a uh, uh, sort of a motto, uh, if you will. Um, and it's I'm trying to build an, an empire, an empire of story, one story at a time. And uh, and so each of those represent pillars in uh, a genre. This is going to sound so pretentious and ridiculous, but uh, there's a I mean, everybody knows about cosmic horror. Um, 
you know, Love Lovecraft gets, um, mm-hmm. you know, Lovecraft gets the most love for that. But of course, there were writers before him that helped usher in the way for it. But there's another genre, and and well, cosmic horror suggests that the universe is uh, apathetic to your existence. It's a cold, dark place, and eventually, the cold death or the 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 heat death of the universe will murder us all. And your life doesn't matter, the knowledge you have doesn't matter, and the love that you feel uh, will never matter except to you. I always get the warm fuzzies when I speak to you. <laughs> right, which is super depressing. And so I've been working mm-hmm. on, I want to work in Lovecraft's vein, but I'm trying to create a genre that is effectively cosmic romance, which is that these things exist, um, you know, evil, unknowable creatures from beyond uh, exist, but that humankind is the singular candle um, amid the darkness of space, and it only takes one candle to push back darkness. Um, and so I've, and so the Masker Yellow Hill and the Survivors Trilogy is sort of my first uh, punching uh, into that uh, trying to build a genre around that, which some people would just say, well, you know, you're just doing action and adventure with a uh, with a romantic, romantic in, in the sense of the classical term. Um, mm-hmm. uh, just you're trying to do romance in action and adventure. Maybe that's what it is, but it's a lot of Lovecraftian uh, monstrosities that humanity is fighting against and ultimately may or may not overcome. Okay. So... Yes, those are. Uh, this is a list of the stories that I have yet to work on. Awesome! It's Great. interesting as as you were uh, as you were saying that. For some reason, my mind went to when you're talking about like you know positive the positive side of things. My mind actually went to Quentin Tarantino mm. because when the most recent movie came out, um, to uh, uh, what is it? Once uh, upon a time Lost in Hollywood. Hollywood. Yeah, once upon a time. It so occurred to me, based on something I was I was reading, that a lot of his stories have really dark moments, mm-hmm. but seem to turn out okay for the main character, right? And in a positive light for the main character, and he's like, yeah, he tells really dark stories, but the people tend to pull through at the end, more so in that movie specifically. But it just kind of what, like, you're you're putting your characters through the paces, but at the end, they're not left broken and disheveled and right. damaged, so, as far as I can see. Right. Raymond Shan, I think this is something Quentin Tarantino gets. Uh, Raymond Chandler, the writer of a lot of detective fiction in the 1930s and 40s, um, he says that uh, with, all, with all fiction, there must be an element of redemption. Um, so no matter how bad things get, people ultimately connect with that idea that we can persist. Um, and I think that that's something Tarantino does incredibly well. And I think it's best represented in Jewel, uh, Jules, um, narrative in Pulp Fiction, going from a small time mob hitman to, no, you don't understand. God came down from heaven. He stopped these bullets. We witness an according to Hoyle miracle. And that changed my life. And I don't have to be the person that I was. And I think that's that's a tremendous. It's one of the best. Uh, it's one, of, or I should say, it's one of my favorite character arcs in film. 
You said it better than I did. <laughs> I... <laughs> you... It's almost like you're a writer, sir. <laughs> so, so does that take care of the book and interview portion of the show? Because we have something really big to talk about. Mm. We, we do. I think it's... we do. But I would, uh, I would certainly like for you to kind of plug where we can find you. I was going to say, is there anything else that, that he would like to plug? Absolutely. Um, so uh, folks can go, they can check out my website at uh, csumble.com. Um, you can also catch me on Twitter at, at csumble. There's a running theme here. Um, although if you want to become one of my fans on Facebook, um, you can find me at uh, facebook.com slash the Ruby Tower. Uh, the Ruby Tower is a, it's a part of the, or it's a, a place in the fantasy uh, series that I'm uh, developing. So, but those are my big things. You can check out Minotaur. It's on Amazon for 99 cents an ebook. You can also buy a paperback for, I think, $4.99 uh, for the paperback copy. And uh, as of tonight, you can pick up the second edition of The Massacre Yellow Hill with a brand new cover. And uh, <laughs> very exciting. And, um, and then here in the next couple of months, you'll all be able to read uh, the sequel to The Massacre Yellow Hill, which is The Red Kingdom. So be on the lookout for that. And I will try to put all of this information in the show notes mm. on uh, the Give Me Five podcast website, uh, libsyn.com slash give me five podcast or something like that. I'm not looking at it right now and I forget. So it'll be there. Yeah, if if you are uh, new to to our little thing that we have here, I would uh, encourage you to check back about 14 months ago with our, our first interview <laughs> with CS and uh, definitely encourage you to give the Massacre at Yellow Hill a read. Uh, follow the man on social media. Check out Minotaur. It's 99 cents. Uh, it's a steal, um, in my personal opinion. And uh, certainly, also in my personal opinion, personal opinion books that are worthy of of having in physical form and adding to your 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 library as i will be doing thank you very much i appreciate that absolutely the episode is called murderous hobos and it is episode 31 so as you guys know out there we have been doing 80s movies some i think early 90s movies over the past few weeks and since we have a guest here today, we offered up to this guest who is a classy, well-read writer. And he came back with Masters of the Universe. Mm. Masters of the freaking universe. What so a shitstorm this was. <laughs> so thank you, C.S. Umble for introducing me to the world of Masters of the Universe. Oh, God, it's so freaking good. I had never seen it, so... Really? <laughs> Jimmy is abhorred. He cannot believe it. One of his eyes is partially closed and twitching. <laughs> this <clears throat> film was directed by Gary Goddard, written by David O'Dell, I think. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I'm not sure if it was written. It stars Dolph Lundgren, Frank Langella, Langella Billy Barty, and 
a very young Courtney Cox in her first her, in major her film first role. major appearance in a film. Courtney Cox. Yeah. And real quick, the plot: the heroic warrior He Man battles against the evil Lord Skeletor and his armies of darkness for control of Castle Grayskull, mm. who appears largely. Castle Grayskull appears largely in a matte painting, and really <laughs> not anywhere else in the movie. All right, I see how this is going to go. I see okay. where we're headed. I see so, the road. Let's, let's uh, give some of our initial thoughts. Everyone just give their initial thoughts. Uh, C.S. Humble, you were the first person. You you were the one that fo- foisted this movie upon me. <laughs> so give me some initial thoughts here. Picture it, if you will, Eternia in the 1980s. Um, this is a film that wanted to be so much more than it is. You can see everything that Goddard wanted to do, make it this huge sweeping epic. It was it, it it is in many ways it appears to be Canon's response to Star Wars. This is going to be their big fantasy tentpole franchise. Mattel sold <clears throat> millions of dollars of these toys of He-Man. Uh and so they decide to make this movie. They get uh the stud, the absolutely roided to the gills Dolph Lundgren to play titular character He-Man. Uh, and, but the best thing about the film, I'm just going to come right out and say it, is that Frank Langella plays the greatest Shakespearean version of Skeletor that will ever be put on any medium. Um, one of my favorite things about the film is that after I saw it, I go, oh, Frank Langella should have played the Emperor in Star Wars. Uh, because that's who Skeletor is in the film. He's basically a knockoff of the Emperor, right even right down to the purple lightning that he shoots out of his hands at one point. Uh, but I saw I this film. This Academy Award winner, Frank Langella, right? That is, that is correct. Academy Award winning Frank Langella. Um, he's so good that there's one point in the film where uh, – one of the one of the the bad guys, I think it's Evil Inn. She asks for like a battalion of soldiers. Let me take a group of soldiers. And Franklin Gella ad libs a line from Macbeth where he goes, "I am not in the giving vein this day." And everybody was like, "Oh, that's right. Franklin Gella's a real actor. We're all B. We're all B movie <laughs> actors, and we're getting blown off of the. We're getting blown off the camera here because Franklin Gella." fully commits to being a skeleton faced <laughs> Macbeth. And it's just tremendous. It is tremendous. Rob. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Jimmy. Wanted no, to go Jimmy. Say, he, there's, there's an aura there that just uh, this impenetrable uh, force field around Franklin Gella in this movie. And it's, it's absolutely fantastic. And Rob, what are your thoughts? My thoughts are that this movie was directed by the same guy who did your. <laughs> but okay. it was not. It's 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 He-Man meets science fiction. When did Skeletor get an army of stormtroopers? That's what I want to know. The the movie starts out with stormtroopers invading Castle Grayskull. I'm like, uh, what ex- what just ex- happened? Excuse me, those are not stormtroopers. They're wearing black armor, sir. <laughs> Point of order, black armor. <laughs> 
<laughs> he got so they're the gunners too. from the Death Star. Yeah, exactly. And I'm like, where did these guys come from? These guys were never in anything remotely involved with He-Man. And they've got they've got like uh, laser blasters, and it was like they they were like, all right, well, we need to take this fantasy epic and make it sci-fi, but then we need to throw in a little bit more Willow, so that we got like this whole amalgam of just crap that nothing actually works. I yeah no. Now I will fully admit that I had a blast watching this. Mm. I did enjoy myself. <laughs> however, however, I looking upon my notes, there were many times where I had like, what's up with all the tech? Thus, the the exact part that Rob was talking about with the the stormtroopers, quote unquote, uh, breaking in. Or did these people ever see? Uh, the thing I one of my notes actually is Karg question mark blade question mark exclamation point snake bitch they have like fifty <laughs> villain toys to pick from <laughs> they why did they didn't make shit up beast man <laughs> yeah so oh, man I, there so was quite good. a few things like that so so my initial thoughts are did they ever see this but then I did some research and now I understand so sh- Jimmy did you get did you give your initial thoughts or are we good on initial thoughts here. I'm not giving my initial okay. thoughts, sir. Well, then I've make it happen. Down, as a matter of fact. Did you not have a childhood? Mm. I had a great childhood. I actually had a ton of the to- the He-Man toys. That Maybe. was my that was my secondary toy. Uh, GI Joe was number one. I'm but I had bullshit on that. I had a ton of How He-Man did you toys. Not see the movie then? Did you ever watch the cartoon? Uh, yeah, I watched the cartoon and She-Ra. You would know that it was a, a blend of, of fantasy and tech. And, yeah, and not, science fiction, without question. Not quite that high. Like, yeah, I get the little green flying ship thing had a blaster on the front of it, but, like, not... <laughs> but He-Man no, didn't but carry no. a sidearm. He, and he well, didn't. Here's, you gotta give him a gun. You gotta give him a gun in the movie, though, because everybody else has got lasers, and lasers are cool as shit. Well, but you weren't so supposed to obviously, have the lasers. Nobody was supposed have to have la- the lasers. Look, okay, here's why we have stormtroopers in the movie. Because, number one, He-Man can't murder people in a children's film. So you have to give these characters... That was in the contract, these- actually. Is it really? They were not because it he certainly not seems like to kill it. anyone. That's why they were robots. But He Man didn't kill anyone. people in the cartoon, which was a huge failing of the children's cartoon. Super uh, He Man should have been lopping off heads the whole time, solving real problems with real solutions. He also never really displayed. Story. He never really displayed the one the one attribute which He Man is known for, which is the strength. His tight that, no, that's not true. There's one point when they're on top of the rooftop and it's doing this great, it's got this great buildup of the soundtrack where it's like, bump, 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 And like 30 guys jump on top of He-Man and then he just throws all those dudes off. At, like he just throws them all uh, to the ground. And then it's great because Skeletor is like, one more move, He-Man, and your friends will not live to see another day. You've seen this more, movie more times than I have, haven't you? I, I have seen this movie so many. It's one of my fa- – this and Big Trouble in Little China are two of my favorite 1980s films. 
Like I love. He, this he also movie. pushes down that column as well. Yep. So there's the Which other shows uh, a great feat of strength. Uh, I I wrote down. Uh, and, and this is very tongue in cheek, uh, Herman Manchester, which is actually what he made <laughs> for. Um, and his futuristic dollar store costume commando friends are teleported to Earth via Gwildor's cosmic key. Mm. They are uh, they are assisted by a member of the uh, cat of friends, um, the, the high Nelwyn too. Yeah, I I saw this movie in the theater. I, I distinctly remember it. It was probably the first movie i ever saw in the movie theater and oh, so it, crushed, it crushed you it, i i wouldn't say it, it crushed me it gave me a great love of cinema mm. uh, it, it was certainly um an introduction to to fantasy and and you know science fiction i had all the damn toys i oh, watched i watched the cartoon I mean, every chance I got, and, and this was the first, I, I think, uh, actualized uh, cartoon I'd ever seen, um, you know, turned into a, a movie, and I loved it. Uh, watching it again recently, I, I loved it just as much as I did the first time I saw it. Um, y- you know, it has its flaws, for sure. It's a... <laughs> right. pro- probably... I, a uh, what's the word I'm I'm looking for? Um, a movie that was uh, certainly bigger than its budget, mm-hmm. and it's it's very obvious at times, uh, but still a very a very self aware film. Absolutely, and I, the the film was originally intended to all be taken place. It was all supposed to take place in Eternia, but like. A fourth of the way through the film, they blew their entire budget, and then Canon was like, "We don't have any more money for this movie, so go film it in a city uh, where it's super cheap, and then you can do the climax of the film." In fact, I think they ran out of money. Like they ran out of money again uh, because the it's great. The scene where the the car explodes and it blows out all the windows was not scripted. They did not know that it was going to blow out all the windows. So they had to pay for all those windows to be refurbished. Uh, and that's mm. why the final battle between Skeletor and He-Man was filmed in Goddard's garage with a spinning light on a wheel, which is why it goes into that weird black and white, like, zoetrope. And also, Frank Langella is not going to be swinging a sword against Dolph Lundgren in a convincing <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Because if you look at the the final battle, it they they stopped the film right before it. So if you look at the final battle, yeah, you can't. It looks like it's two different places. Yeah. Right. There's a lot of insert shots, and there's a lot of like just fog and lights and close ups and things like that. That's pretty much why the only time you see Eternia or Castle Grayskull is the throne room because that was a large part of the budget, and so they decided they would bookend all of the Earth parts. And it's a great set. It's a it, that great actually is very set. true. And a lot of thought went into that set because I, I, we all did a lot of research on this. But they said that they looked at some of the old like uh, swashbuckling films, like what do you need to make a good set? Places to hide, places to jump, different levels, things like that. And it has all that. Right. I have no problems with the set. My, my problem is with the script. Also, there's other parts of Ooh. the movie. <laughs> yes. Right. Now, like uh, the hard-boiled police detective who starts killing people with a shotgun. 
uh, which is great. Oh yeah, uh, oh, it's so good. Kill to kill and arrest. I'm gonna need some backup. He's not concerned with what dimension or world these people. He's not interested in learning about their culture uh, or who they are. He just wants to arrest them or kill them. And he is rewarded with like basically being hanging out with a Eternian damsel at the end. That is correct because that's what he deserves. That's what everyone who is in this movie deserves. Exactly. Good journey. Yeah, when they do so the, the good director, journey at the end, ugh, yeah. brutal. Good journey. So the director here. Uh, I'm gonna. <laughs> so I decided to look a little bit more into to him, and Just obviously he didn't set into. Movie. He didn't set out to make a subpar movie. Uh, so Gary Goddard or Goddard, I can't pronounce that. But Rob, he also directed Poseidon's Fury. Mm. Oh, really? You know, and do you know what that is? I know Rob knows. And he directed T2 3D. So he is the guy that directed all of the Universal Ride movies. Hmm. Which, and he did the Spider-Man Ride stuff, as okay. well as the, the story for Jurassic Park the Ride and all that. He was also an Imagineer uh, for the World Showcase when Epcot came out. And he is King Candy from the Candyland board game. His his likeness is can he one of his first gigs was creating the Candyland characters. Hmm, that's interesting. I didn't know that. Yeah, so that was kind of an interesting little factoid, but it actually made sense in retrospect because this movie just gets right into things. If you were somehow living in a bubble in the eighties and had no idea what, that He Man was a thing, <laughs> like you did, I had the toys, sir. I had a Castle Grayskull, even. Oh, I remember that. The one that opened up had the little hinge yep. on the back left-hand side. Yep, and had yeah. the little trap door. And, yeah. Oh, yeah. I had one, too. Yeah. See? Yeah, see? We were, we were good. And like it just opens up, and you don't really know anything about He-Man. You just know that there's this... No, and you never do. Yeah. Which, is, just... which helps the film, because Dolph Lundgren was not a good actor at this point. No, no. Oh, his his delivery of the line "I have the power" actually made oh, me cringe. I have the power. <laughs> it, it actually made me cringe. I was like, "Oh no, stop!" Right. And and what's so brutal about that is that right before that, Frank Langella gives this Shakespearean monologue about like <laughs> I am like I am power. I am oh, life. You, oh right, and and he's wonderful. like. And then he just says, like, he's just totally buying into it. And then Dolph Lundgren grabs the sword. He's like, I am the boy. Yeah. I'm like, the, oh, God. The ADR is really bad on that. <laughs> so he's standing and he pulls the sword out and he starts to to scream. And it's, like, delayed by a second. It's brutal. So it's just like, oh, man. Um, yeah. I, I don't know that there was any better choice they could have made to play Herman Manchester though um, <laughs> all his feathered hair glory you know he, was like he certainly guy. looks the part and and I have to take a moment to acknowledge our boy Dolph Lundgren because it it you're familiar that he was in the movie The Expendables right with all those Absolutely. other guys who are supposed badasses mm -hmm. Dolph Lundgren is a legitimate badass Correct. I, I just Absolutely. want to point that out 
I mean, he, he, I mean, this is a guy who earned a degree in chemical engineering from the Royal Institute of Technology. He went to MIT on a Fulbright scholarship, which is super impressive. He ended up leaving after after two weeks or two months to pursue a career in acting. But he also holds a master degree from the University of Sydney. He speaks six languages. He is a third Don black belt in Kyokushin karate. And he was actually the European champion from 80 to 81. Yeah, he was a Swedish kickboxing champion. It, dude is a legitimate badass. Right. I will just say that. There's this great story from when he was filming Rocky Four with Sylvester Stallone. And he alone <laughs> told him, Stallone tells him, he goes, no, 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 hit me, hit me. Like, hit, hit me, me for real. And he clipped Stallone and he not, he like almost detached <laughs> one of his retinas in his eye and put Stallone in the hospital God. for two days. <laughs> he, he actually put him, I, I, th- I thought I read he put him in the ICU with a swollen heart. He, he hit him so hard, he gave him a swollen heart. And yeah. they were like, well, how did this happen? He's like, well, have you seen Dolph Lundgren? Have you seen the giant Swede that hit me in the chest? <laughs> yes. It's such a good movie. And it, it does a lot of things poorly. I mean, you know, uh, Gwildor's obviously a Yoda knockoff. Like, right? Like, and that's fine. Because we can't do Orko. Because we can't have that dude floating around everywhere. Because we don't have the budget to have that guy floating oh, yeah. around. Well, they, yeah, right? they had those those stupid flying discs at the end of the movie that were just absolutely terrible. Well, okay, let's just hang on a second. Let's just take a second oh, to realize that we had a limited budget to fulfill a dream. I, I understand that it was 1987 and technology was severely limited with what they could do. I mean, but he is literally just, it's like he's on a green screen. And that's probably exactly what it was. But he's just standing on this thing. Oh, it's so good. And they've got the they got the green screen going behind him. I guess it was a blue screen at the time. And, With a and fan like, in his face. But it doesn't matter because eventually he gets the skeleton and Franklin Gella just starts talking again and we forget that this is a this is a crazy movie that shouldn't work but does. Yeah, the the laser fight disc chase was uh, absolutely it was amazing. Yeah. Um but I could totally imagine, like, seven-year-old me and four-year-old Jimmy or whatever it was at the time being like, oh, yeah! I walked out of that that theater on clouds. I mean, it was one of the cool – and they said shit in the movie oh, a couple of yeah. times. Right. Loomis. <laughs> Loomis says it. Yeah. It's so good. Because they uh, shoot him with the laser mom, pistol. Like, the boy ain't right. It's such a good, it's such a good scene because they shoot the laser rifles over and he goes, holy shit. And you're like, this is a kid's movie. You can't and say that in the kid's movie. He, he, I, I kept expecting to see him turn to the guy and tell him he was a slacker. Oh man. And when, uh, t- what is it? Tila? There's one, and this is, this is maybe the greatest moment in cinema history. She just breaks the fourth wall, looks at the camera and goes, woman at arms. And it's like, yep. and you're just like, you're freaking right, woman in arms. And then she just goes on blasting black, like black armored stormtroopers. And it's tremendous. Tremendous. So I actually thought the movie started off really, really strong. It does. Because yeah. of the canon opening sequence. Because of something Jimmy and I have seen multiple times, the opening of the gunship video. Yep. Uses the canon logo and the opening sound. And I was like. Oh wow! They actually use the same sound as their yep. opening, like movie production house credit. And my thought was like, well, why are they allowed to use that? And I was like, oh yeah, because Canon is very out of business. 
no. <laughs> and as soon as that thought was over, I you of course see the aforementioned uh, Castle Grayskull painting, the matte painting. I was like, well, mm. that looks pretty good. And then there's a multicolored fuzzy caterpillar that's in the middle of the screen in a star field, and that becomes the the Masters of the Universe logo. And it's it was pretty fine. much down. It was pretty much downhill from it's there. It's fine. Up, <laughs> uphill. My one of my favorite shots from the the opening uh, fight sequence with with He Man, who you're just like, who the who the hell is this? Um, with with a shirt, he, sir. He, no, why? You don't. Cover why would you up do that, Glory? Like he's, it's like a close shot on his arm, and he's swinging, and then there's this, this shot of his chest. And you get that, you get that crest. Yeah, just that, and it's just wonderful. <laughs> uh, and I was going to comment on the um, the laser disc uh, chase fight. It's like those are very clearly dolls. On these, <laughs> and they're not yeah. even He-Man figures. Correct. Joe was like, "Why?" It it felt like somebody took a Ray Harryhausen, like night like nineteen fifties claymation situation. Yeah. Right, right. And then, uh, but then it's okay. Like I said, because then we get back to Frank Langella. Anytime Frank Langella is on the screen, you're like, "This is a good movie. He's going to win an Academy Award for this." This is the best thing I've ever seen. And then he leaves the the, the camera, and you're like, "Can we just what get back to Frank like Gallup? <laughs> what am I watching? What is right. this? <laughs> what? Hang on, they're eating. What? They're eating ribs from Robbie's ribs. What is happening? Oh man, it's so good. It's so good. But since you mentioned it, since you mentioned it, Robbie's ribs. This movie is not the worst thing to happen to that location. The Did location of Robbie's ribs is the parking lot that Roddy King got his ass beat. Really? Yep. Yikes. Wow. R.I.P. That Robbie's actually ribs. is the worst thing that happened there. It's not really a Robbie's Ribs place. They 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 dressed it up. It is a fast food place. And this this information comes from the Art of, of uh, He-Man book. And it has... Now, everyone says take that story with a grain of salt because the person that said it is... Um, a long-time Hollywood, uh, not set designer, uh, locations scout. Mm-hmm. So he's a little bit nutto, not so, mm-hmm. but that is what the rumor is. Nice. The movie so. gets five out of five stars for being a great film that's not a good film. Oh, <laughs> and enjoyable. And now, I, I'd be remiss if I did not mention the uh, excellent jo- job done by Billy Barty. Mm-hmm. Who also played, known as the High Nelwyn. Yeah. Uh, absolutely. You know, he, he pretty much played every um, character of small stature that wasn't Warwick Davis, but he did it so well. Uh, he did it in Legend. He did it in this movie. Uh, he did it in he UHF. Not- He's yep. done it in a couple of movies that we've done. I mean, he was in yeah. Willow. He was in UHF. He was in this movie. I mean, he's been all over the place. We must, we are clearly Billy Barty aficionados. I'm clearly. a fan. Now, you, Rob, you are the fantasy movie person mm-hmm. here. So, do all fantasy films need a? I don't know. Is it? I don't know if dwarf little person. I'm trying not to be halfling offensive here. Halfling. 
Do all Rock. fantasy movies need that? Is it like a union thing? Like, oh, you're making <laughs> that movie. I, uh, I mean, I don't know that they need them, but certainly a large portion. Well, no, I will say that my favorite movie, which is a fantasy movie that was set in the 80s, did not have a little person in it. I, can, I cannot remember a little person in The Princess Bride. You were you were correct. Okay, there was not one there. So they had to pay a fine. They did, they did, but it was worth it because the movie worked anyway. <laughs> yeah, because you mentioned earlier that Gwildor couldn't be Orko and because of flying around, which totally makes sense. Right. My thought was that Gwildor was kind of the uh, Duffy Bear of eighties mm. movies, and if you mm. know what Duffy Bear is, or as Orlando people do, um, the other toy that they made for all the Disney things it's a little bear that doesn't have a movie or anything associated with it um that inspires more anger in my wife than literally anything else <laughs> really? whenever she sees duffy bear at disney i have to restrain her and i saw Gwildor and i kind of felt that way i'm like and then i was and then i kind of grew to like him i liked his little house his little like with all of his science experiments that mm-hmm. kind of just all look like blenders that they took apart you could totally tell he was wearing a mask though because oh, yeah. his lips didn't move when he talked. Not at all. <laughs> and that's I'm why that's why the rib sauce spilled down his chin because he's just trying to dump it in the hole. Oh, it's so good. <laughs> it's so good. The movie's so good. <laughs> the other some of the other people in this, of course, Courtney Cox, known at the time as the girl from the Bruce Springsteen video. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And uh, Chelsea Field, who played Tila. Who got okay. hired because she got she actually tried out for the Universal Conan the Barbarian show that the mm. director had created and written and directed, I guess. And he remembered her and was like, Oh, there's this one girl she could actually do flips and stuff like that. And they had her like literally running around the office jumping on couches and pretending to shoot things, and she said she felt like a five year old. And they gave her the call back after five tries of again jumping behind couches and fake blasting things. <laughs> and she was super excited. And I'm not going to take that away from her. There's a person in this movie named Christina Pickles. Yes. I am just Who's full that? of... Uh, Christina Pickles was... Uh, she was the sorceress. Is she evil in? No, she was the sorceress no, with that, the crystal oh, helmet. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Evil in is Meg... Uh, Meg... Um, oh, not Meg Foster... She's the Meg from the 1980s that's not Meg Ryan or Meg Foster. Yeah. I will use my loud keyboard. I uh, I, I Googled her and uh, I believe yeah, uh, a very disheveled-looking woman in a mugshot appeared. I've, so. I've no, seen she's actually her, been in something recently. I've seen oh. her in other things. Maybe it wasn't a mugshot. But... Uh, also, uh, Christina Pickles, she, ironically, and not because of this movie, actually played Courtney Cox's mom on Friends. So hmm. she plays the sorceress in this movie with Courtney Cox and then plays her mom on Friends. Uh, you were, we were looking for Evelyn. Is that what we are yes. looking for? Uh, yeah, it is Meg Foster. Meg Foster, okay. okay. Yeah, Meg Foster. Yeah. Most recently seen in... Um, uh, she was an overlord, actually, which I liked. And... Uh, Couple, and Jeepers Creepers 3. So she's still working. She's out there. She's actually got three mm. movies in post-production. 
Hmm. Powerful Meg Foster. Yeah. Very cool eyes on that one. Did not have to use contacts. Oh, she was also in They Live. Yeah. Yep. Okay. So let's, shall we move on past the actors? And what do you think of the just the characters they picked and like the character design? It was interesting that they moved away from all of the actual He-Man villains. Like they they, they did Beast Man, mm-hmm. um, but the, you don't have many faces. You have some dude who looks like Predator, but is not Predator. He's like amphibian Predator with the with the the puffer fish thing going on. Yeah, the snake, the snake lady, Sorad or something. Yeah, snake bitch, as I called her, because I couldn't hear what they said. And then, yeah, uh, like, and then you have Swordmaster. No, Blade, Blade. Blade, Blade. Master. I'm, I'm sorry. Excuse me. Excuse me. Blade Master, <laughs> who is an actually really an accomplished fencer, and you can see when he's trying to do the fight scene with Dolph Lundgren, he is trying not to hurt Dolph Lundgren, <laughs> which is tremendous. I kind of like the design of that costume. Like, of the villains, he was kind of my yeah. favorite. You'd wear that one. I, I would wear that one. But I mean, I'm like, where's Trapjaw? Where's Manny mm-hmm. Faces? Where's mm-hmm. all? Where's all these villains that I know? And they just Triclops. like was that the guy with the three eyes? Triclops. Yes, and they just made up these jabronis. I'm like, who the hell are these people? These are new action figures that they can sell. Mm. Mm. I'm gonna I'm gonna chime in there with a quote. Thank you for you yeah, you're setting me up here. I was gonna find the quote. So William Stout, the production designer. I forget his official title, but we'll just say production designer. One of the big issues that occurred during the making of, of them was the art department and I were working away and the people from Intel were walking through the offices and one of the guys was going, oh, that's going to be a great toy. And then another guy pointed to a different picture and said, no, this one's going to be a great toy. I stopped him and said, gentlemen, you hired me to design the motion picture. You did not hire me to design your next year's toy line. I own the rights to all this material. They were not allowed to make the toys without paying him directly. Because they... <laughs> Because this was not actually sponsored by Mattel. Um, mm. The movie people actually... Mattel didn't go to the movie people and say, make a movie. The movie people went to Mattel and said, can we make a movie? And then bought the rights for a million dollars. And as a result of that, Mattel had to buy back any rights for the toys that they made, which is why there were not a lot of toys. Wow. So there, so there we go. Thank you for that. Hmm. You, you've been setting me up with all my crazy trivia that has no doubt knocked actual important information out of my brain. I might have <laughs> to watch this movie tonight. It is so good. And I, well, I mean, I'll just fast forward. I'll just fast forward to all the Franklin Gellis scenes. I'm sure you can probably find like a like a clip bit on YouTube where it's just all of Skeletor's it's, lines. And I'm, I'm telling you guys, I'm telling you, he any. Like I think he said in an interview that playing Skeletor was his favorite role he's ever done because it was his son who convinced him to be like, Dad, you have to be Skeletor because Skeletor was his favorite <laughs> villain. So he did it, and he's like, I love doing that. I love playing an unashamed villain, like a you know, that high-level adventure level. And And I'm that guy who in the first scene with Skeletor, I'm like, why is he wearing those little pointy girly boots? I don't – as he's – as he's walking past the screen, you're looking, you get a close up of his shoes and they're like those ankle zip up boots that have the zipper on the inside. And it's like, why is he wearing those? Why didn't they just put him in regular boots? I feel like you went into this movie with the wrong mindset. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, that's a Rob thing. 
I've, I've what are these boots before. about? I'm like, what is that garbage? Or what about that cool as shit Ram staff? Oh my god, I want that so the bad. The staff was so great, and it was yeah. so heavy. Yeah, they pulled off the staff. And then the amazing, like, Galactus armor. Oh the, my god. The, okay, so when he gets the, armor that he was the, the Bushido armor that he puts on for, for some weird reason in the middle of the you movie? You better the end of the your brakes on Golden Skeletor, because he's amazing. Yes, yeah. he looked exactly like the wall art in my local Thai restaurant. <laughs> oh, it's so good. <laughs> You are no longer my equal. <laughs> so have good. the chicken panang. It's delicious. <laughs> so good, man. Sapuku for you. Mm. <laughs> I was like, I was yeah, like it was great because I did go into this movie blind because I didn't see it in the theater. I'm yeah. not like Jimmy, but I was a He-Man person. You wouldn't have seen it if you were blind. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I, I, I want to actually, there's a little subtext in here when we're talking about the rib restaurant. So they steal the ribs, they eat the ribs, and she is concerned about how they got the little stick in the ribs, correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He was a vegetarian, apparently. Eternians and are vegetarians. It, I was just going to say, it, now does that mean that everyone on Eternia is a vegan or a vegetarian? Is that it, like canon? Yeah, they have moved, they have evolved beyond the eating of animals. Cause they well, Man, man at Arms is a is a opportunist. He's like, I'll eat whatever, it, whatever comes. He's like, you got to get your meals when you can get them. So I don't, I don't know that he's without rations. Cause I was like, like usually I don't catch those things. I'm like, wait a second. That means that they don't eat animals on Eternia. Correct. Because at, at least Tila doesn't. But then again, Gwildor was kind of like, Oh, and it tasted so good. Hmm. Oh, I was going to share. I was going to share. <laughs> Wildor, it's fantastic. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. I worked on it before we did the show. <laughs> <laughs> I finished then, the movie about three minutes before we uh, we jumped into this. It's so good. Bum, bum, bum. Oh, man. I freaking love this. I'm so glad we talked about it. <laughs> Oh, we're still going. We're not. Oh, we're still, oh I'm sorry. Jeez, I'm so sorry. Yeah, yeah. There's. Oh, I got more. I'm. I'm. Game on on this one because I had. A, I had some fun. So let's. Maybe we should talk about the the humans. The. Uh, the of course, they when they land on Earth that we've already talked about Courtney Cox, but her boyfriend, the vapid band guy. Oh yeah, at the height of uh, the synth. Uh, being the the main focus, <laughs> they managed to turn this um, cosmic key into a uh, sci-fi keytar. Thank oh, you, so good. Thank you. I have written down the cosmic keytar, and I was waiting because I knew you were going to say it. <laughs> I love it so much. I want one. No, I, th- I think I know it. I think and I, I love it. the design of that. He's like, you know the tones. And you're like, <laughs> does no one on Eternia know how to like get a like a, a lyric or a, a, a tune in their head? Yeah, <laughs> they're all it's musically like a, they, they, They're unfamiliar with music. Yeah, it's a it's a the design of it is like a uh, it's a like a crypto key synth. Uh, device that will also scramble your eggs. Right. Um, and th- then there's that, there's, because there are moments when, like, 
Franklin Gallo, when he's there, he's doing great Shakespeare and in a uh, uh, bad guy, whatever. But there's one moment where it does dip into like this notion of like sweetness where he's like, there's a, there's a million guys like me. And he's like, no, Kevin, only one of anyone. And you're like, Oh, that's right. This is about a cartoon. And everybody's supposed to feel good. When we watch the cartoon. <laughs> sure. Your parents died in a plane accident, but, but she gets oh to go God. back in time. Thank you, Rob. <laughs> oh. And then she like steals. Also, can we talk about for just one second, the nightgown that Courtney Cox is apparently sleeping in at the end of the film. You're like, what are no. you, my grandmother? <laughs> yep, I all the way down to her ankles. Right. And all the way up to the, you know, very. With, with a collar and everything. I mean, like a lace collar up top. Right, because obviously we couldn't have Courtney Cox running around with like half of her clothes on. (laughs) I'm going to play some canasta and turn in early. (laughs) Okay. Oh, and I love when uh, she's like grabbing the keys and she's like, no, you can't go. And she's like, what? It's just a short flight. Your father's a great pilot. I want to be like, he's a terrible pilot. He gets both of you killed and you don't even know it. And then she runs out of the house. (laughs) And, and that apparently is the end of it. She runs out and it, she's like, I saved him. And I'm like, they're not going just because you ran out the house. All right. Well, the keys. A, this movie would work great as a prequel to like Final Destination. Because she saved mm. their lives. Now they have to like. Donnie Darko. Pay yeah. back the Reaper. Weird. Yeah. She's angered them. The of course the the chief or sheriff or whatever that dude detective guy Strickland, yeah, yep. That's I couldn't see him as anything but Strickland. I was like, oh, oh the that's why I was like, yeah, I kept waiting for him to call him a slacker. You're yeah. a slacker. This oh, father was a slacker. <laughs> this is his film coming off of like Top Gun, right? He was the one that said uh, you're writing checks, your ass can't cash or whatever. Yeah, that was one year before. So he goes from. Like Top Gun High, huge movie to to goes uh, higher mountaintop, <laughs> Masters of the Universe, yeah. probably getting paid like wage scale to be in this movie. Well, Top Gun was what eighty six. I uh, think yeah. so. Yeah, yeah. So th- so he went from Back to the Future to Top Gun to Masters of the Universe. Correct. Right, Correct. a meteoric rise is what we call that. Yes, <laughs> something like that. We'll, we'll we'll call it something like that. At the point when, at pretty much the halfway point, I decided to, to check, and He-Man had been in the movie for less than 15 minutes <laughs> at about an hour in, which is probably due to his lack of like. That's, that's why the title of the movie is Masters of the Universe, not He-Man and the Masters of the Universe. Uh, right. Gotcha. Right. Correct. Also, Dolph Lundgren's the worst actor in the film. <laughs> And also, true. there are times when I wonder if they, if the reason they blew the budget is because the amount of baby oil that he is covered in throughout the film. He yeah. is greasy. But I, I gotta say, he's in great shape. Uh, yeah, sure. I mean, absolutely. Still. But do we need to have him slathered in mineral oil, mineral oil the entire film? Yes. Absolutely. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> yes we do. That's, that's just, just like Jason Momoa and Aquaman. So Jimmy, uh, Speaking it, of, it really did change. Aquaman, Dolph Lundgren. Oh uh, yeah, 
Did I what? I said, yeah, this movie really did change your life. It sure did. Yeah. So uh, did we all notice the um, the door falling on He-Man at one yes. point? Yes, the door falls on Like when he's, uh, what is he trying? Like he has to like, sh- he's got to like shoulder push it out of the way. Because it falls, and it leans on up, he pulls it on a wall, and then it falls on him. I'm like, really? Like they didn't decide that? Okay, let's retake that. Now, they probably at that point didn't have the budget. To this do film else. doesn't have time to do reshoots. We're doing it one time. We're doing it right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then Skeletor takes over the world on a rose bowl float, heading down, <laughs> he heading down a desolate street. With so with uh, flying discs, which we've discussed. And an army of death troopers. Yes. 100%. <laughs> What's not to love? Living his I best know. life. Everything is amazing in this yeah. movie. So, what else do we got out there? Anything? Should, should we close out? I think National so. Universe? We we do have that one question that we always ask. Oh yeah, oh, we're would, gonna ask. Would this movie benefit from a remake? Yes, and I would write it for free. <laughs> <laughs> Go ahead, Jimmy. Uh, I'm pointing the right direction this time. Um, yes, I, I know it's been kind of tossed around. They revealed a, a teaser poster for it and um and just for for i think people our age and why not i mean seriously why not update those graphics you know put it in eternia and i think this could have a a you know a real real following and a lot of people would go and love it and um I would be first in line to see uh, Masters of the Universe written by C.S. Umble. Oh, man. Now, I think I think it's a, a very razor's edge on if it's a good idea or not. Because I would love to see it updated. I do like a good barbarian movie and a good fantasy movie. But I think there's been a lot of movies that have done the self-aware thing, like the self-aware remake, uh, and has done it well, and of some that have bombed, like the Charlie's Angels of last week. But then again, there was like a 21 Jump Street kind of remake where it was aware of what it was and therefore did well. Mm-hmm. And I'm not sure if the market as a whole is ready for a that uh, Masters of the Universe remake. And I would, it would be a shame if it were to fail twice. I think the movie could greatly benefit from a remake. They could they could do a lot with the new technology that we have as far as as far as making some of those scenes a little bit more seamless. But I would be all for a remake in which they completely scrap the original script and go off of something that's actually I don't know, He-Man like. Yes. Um yeah. G- give me a He-Man story in Eternia. And and we'll go from there and we'll see how it goes. But I, I think this movie definitely could benefit from a remake. Mm-hmm. De-age all the characters. Do, do it all over again. And you bring back Frank Langella to play old Skeletor. <laughs> yes. 
Like no, see, I'm I I'm saying Christopher Walken. <laughs> wow, he man <laughs> up his ass. Exactly. <laughs> no way, man! You bring back Frank Langella. What's he got going on? <laughs> uh, you bring back Frank Langella. He plays old, decrepit Skeletor, right? We have a new He-Man in Eternia, and Skeletor is trying to get to Castle Grayskull to revive his power. And so you that way, Franklin Gell would be able to play like the old, like King Lear version of Skeletor. Mm-hmm. And it would so, just be tremendous. So we've got a whole Mumra version of Skeletor is what you're saying. Shit, have him play Mumra in the Thundercats movie. Like, <laughs> let's get Frank Langella some work. Anything that gets him working. I mean, he's underappreciated. Like, Frank Langella was one of the great Draculas of all time. Um, he's incredible in Amadeus. Like, Frank Langella is an, is an incredible actor. That's the title of the episode, by the way. Let's get Frank Langella some work. <laughs> <laughs> Let's get Frank Langella some freaking okay. work. Okay, remember that because I'm not writing the whole thing down. So this movie <laughs> made Let's get seventeen. Oh, what? What was writing? Yeah. So this movie made seventeen point three million dollars, which sucks because it would cost twenty two million dollars to make. It is a cla- it is considered a classic cult film. It has probably made its money back now. I mean, from all of us paying for well, we watched it on streaming, but for free. Um, <laughs> it, they had planned on doing a sequel, which uh, was supposed to have Skeletor take over the world and rule it with an iron fist or a bone fist or whatever. Iron ram's head yeah oh yeah yeah. because it didn't do so well that sequel was turned into the 1989 movie cyborg starring jean-claude van damme Hmm. weird facts very weird facts because i don't know uh jimmy did you stay all the way to the end credits when you were a kid but that saw the secret scene at the end i don't believe i i don't remember do y'all know that there's a secret yeah like him where a skeleton pops his head up out of the water and he's like, I'll be back. And then it cuts away. Yep. I, I don't think so. It's <laughs> incredible. It yeah. just probably on YouTube. And a lie. The problem. Uh, <laughs> Franklin Gill will be back. So I'm here to announce on the Give Me Five podcast I have been signed by Hollywood to write the next Masters of Universe. All of Hollywood. All of Hollywood gathered All together. All of Hollywood called me. It was like, hey, it's Hollywood. Would you do a movie for us? And I said, absolutely. As long as it's Masters of the Universe. Nothing else. Nothing like, else will do. That's why we're calling. <laughs> so, guys, would you suggest watching this movie? I, we know your answer. C.S. Humble. 100%. Rob? <laughs> absolutely not. <laughs> we couldn't convert you know, Rob. He's a curmudgeon. This... this I mean, if you're if you're looking for something to 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 watch because it's terrible, go for it. But Not this rude. this movie was just a disaster from start to finish. Gotcha. And Jimmy, absolutely one thousand percent. I agree, absolutely one thousand percent. I enjoyed it. I had a good time. If you want to enjoy it more, here's another little thing you can do. 
pretend that Courtney Cox's character is actually the same person that became Monica on Friends. <laughs> pretend it's wow. a prequel to Friends. And then that's where you hit the Inception, the bomb. Yep. She changed her name to Monica to avoid the skeleton bots. I think that takes us to the uh, the end here. Absolutely. So, first of all, CS Humble, thank you for joining us. Thank you guys for having me. It's always a pleasure. Um, I love y'all's show, and uh, it's great getting uh, back in touch with y'all. Thank you again. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, man. Really looking forward to uh, your future endeavors. Absolutely. Thank you very much. I really appreciate it, guys. Yes, that brings us to our question of the week. Our top five movies that had nothing to do with the source material. Why, why are we talking about that? Oh, yeah. Because P-Man had, or Masters of the Universe had nothing to do. Yeah, I mean, the costumes, kind of. No, but sure. Jimmy, Jimmy, what you got? I'm going to start off with... Uh, a movie that made an absolute killing around the world, and that will be Jurassic Park. Ooh. Um, it is a much darker tale by Michael Crichton, uh, one that after seeing the movie, my grandmother started reading to us, and it promptly stopped because it was uh, actually terrifying. There's some, I mean, yeah, there are dinosaurs. You know, there's some things in there, but certainly didn't start the same way. Uh, my number four is going to be Fight Club. And though I absolutely love the film, I believe Chuck Palahniuk even came out and said, man, I wish I had written that movie. Um, there were enough differences there for me to put it on my list. Uh, number three is going to be um, probably... Mm, I really want to put this at number one because I hated it so much. But I will... I'll go ahead and do um, the movie I Am Legend. Uh, yeah. the, the book... Um, God, it's absolutely incredible. And it uh, it it really had absolutely nothing to do with the movie, and the movie was a uh, a complete. Joke. The book twisted it, right? There, well, the movie twisted it. Like the the book was actually supposed to be that, like this the guy that was killing all of these vampire whatever creatures was actually the bad guy. But you kind of followed him as a hero for most of it. That's where that's where the title came from, right? That's where the huge yes he he he's finally imprisoned by the. Uh, vampires and uh, he looks out from his there's a big they're all celebrating in the streets and he looks out from his prison cell and they're fucking terrified and that's when he he mentions the line you know I am legend yeah okay yeah that's what uh, I thought so it, it was just absolutely in, incredible um, number two is going to be uh, The Shining uh, it's a film that Stephen King hates, and um, you know I, I believe uh, Stanley Kubrick, in his mind, uh, destroyed it. So that brings me to my number one, and I am going to have to say that that is uh, Forrest Gump. Uh, 
it just leaves out a, a lot of things from the original story and uh it it does uh, uh romanticize the the story of Jenny uh, uh because things don't uh work out quite as well as they do um well things don't work out great for her anyway but it's it's not a a beautiful love story through time i'll i'll say that much Interesting. This is, I think we might have gone a different direction for everything. Mm. That's rare. Okay. No, I know. I mean, they're in, in my list, you know, admittedly. You actually are, mentioned none of the movies on my list. Yeah. No, some of mine. Same yeah. Here. There's, Same here. there's a fight club in fight club. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, there's a character named Forrest Gump and Forrest Gump. Yeah. Well, there's, uh, there's different things in some of mine too. Like, sure. so I'll go with okay. uh, my number five is the all of the Transformers movies, mm-hmm. except for Bumblebee. Yeah. Because Bumblebee is the only one that felt like the original. Yes, there was giant robots. They were not tonally the same, not visually the same, which they tried to explain it, but Transformers was my number five. Number four, I also you also went with good films for the most part. <laughs> I went with mostly bad, <laughs> all bad, actually. Uh, Catwoman is my number four was not in Gotham. The character was like a, like a salesperson or a businesswoman or something, not Mm -hmm. a prostitute cat burglar. Uh, They changed everything, including the race of the character, which I don't usually care about, but they they changed it so much that it didn't, it didn't work at all. Gotcha. Number three, and I'm up in the air on this one, but I think, well, I'll just say battleship. Uh, oh, okay. Hard to make a movie about a board game that doesn't mm-hmm. have an actual plot. <laughs> but it's even harder to introduce a completely random alien discussion. Alien invasion! Alien invasion into it. Why not? And I get that they tried to put, like, you know, oh, well, we could, we have to separate everything off into grid. Yeah, I actually saw this movie, but it did not work. Again, did when when the ship went down, did did one of the officers actually scream out? They sank our battleship. I don't think they did that, but they were they lost all like that would have been hilarious. They lost all radar. So they like the guy like separated out the ocean into a grid and they used like they did the thing where they had like the old school sailors get Mm -hmm. on their battleship from World War Two. And they they were able to do the math to figure out how to hit the base, the battleship and stuff. It was Mm. It was not computer-controlled kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So that was a little ridiculous. That was number three. Number two, Super Mario Brothers. Oh. I, I'm, that movie is so bad that I think we're going to end up watching it someday when I'm angry at you, too. So the, the, none of it was right. I I don't even think the dude that they hired to play Mario was Italian, first of all. Was no, it? it was Bob Hoskins. <laughs> yeah. There you go. And number one, our movie of the night, Masters of the Universe. Uh, just rewind a little bit if you want to know the reasons. <laughs> you you actually had two of my movies. Oh. This is an interesting question. Go on, Rob. Well, I think at, at number five, I'm going to put tonight's movie, Masters of the Universe. It just, just egregious elimination of everything that we've ever known about masters of the universe at number four 
it, it, this is going to be like a 3-4-4-3 kind of thing. Because Transformers, all of the Transformers movies, and all of the G.I. Joe movies. Because other than the fact that they had G.I. Joe and Cobra, and that was that was it. I was yep. like, what? This isn't my G.I. Joe. What is this garbage? Mm-hmm. Or this isn't my Transformers. That That's not... I, what? I, oh, no. Stop. Stop. Collaborate and listen. Rob is exactly. back. Exactly. I love that he was angrily pointing at his microphone when he said that. Stop it. Um, at number two, I'm going to put Who Framed Roger Rabbit? Because Who Framed Roger Rabbit was a bit of a darker tale um, other than uh, another Bob Hoskins movie, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> other, other than, you know, Eddie Valiant investigating a... Uh, a situation or a crime or whatever involving uh, Roger, Jessica, and Baby Herman. That that was pretty much it. Robert Roger in the book was not really a sympathetic character. Like he didn't really feel for Roger Rabbit or anything like that. It was it was a little bit darker, darker uh, original story. But my number one. Anytime the author of the source material sues. To have his name removed from the movie, you know shit is bad. Ooh, I wonder if he's... And that's got to be Lawnmower Man. Mm. Lawnmower uh, Man... Watchman, Watchman or uh, League of, of Extraordinary Gentlemen. Lawnmower Man went from a guy with a that was feeding people to a magical lawnmower to... A, a guy who mowed lawns that was handicapped and became a genius and was in and, and inserted himself into the net. It's like, what? Yeah. How, what? Yeah, <laughs> what that movie is there's this thing called the internet that came out. Yeah, oh. and they wanted to involve it, and they're like, let's just make a new movie and call it Lawnmower Man, which didn't make sense at all. No, not remotely. So Lawnmower Man has to be my number one. Yeah, I am flopping my number three, my number one. Uh, number one, it was so egregious. I'm I'm putting I Am Legend there. Number uh, Forrest Gump moves to number three. Not a love story through time. Uh, Jenny ended up uh, – Jenny did not get AIDS and actually married someone else. Um, so, uh, yeah. Okay. I Am Legend. Garbage. Uh, <laughs> Okay, I just want to – we're going to close out here. I wanted to first of all say thank you out there, listeners. I just – I haven't checked our reviews and stuff in a very long time, and we got like 17 more reviews from you guys oh, out nice. there. Um, they, we have a bunch of reviews, all of them positive, so thank you so much. Yep. Uh, also, uh, Rob, uh, one of the listeners that befriended you, uh-huh. um, I wanted to thank him personally because oh. – Okay. Oh, I would, I, what's his first name? Scott. I'm sorry, Scott. Scott. Yes. Scott. Awesome dude. He is an awesome cheerleader online. He he interacts with our posts. He likes our posts, shares our our posts, and um, every time I see that, it makes my night. Like I'll see a, we get a notification about it, and so I just want to give a huge thanks to you as well as the people that have you know interacted with us. Uh, of course, Jubals and everyone else. If I'm forgetting anybody, sorry, but. Uh, Makes us feel good, and you know we're sitting here alone in our offices, and it's nice to know there are people listening. 
And to celebrate with you guys next week for Thanksgiving, the movie I'm going to make these people watch. It's not an 80s movie, but it does involve Thanksgiving and Polly Shore, son-in-law. Oh, yeah. So that's what we're, we're going to... I'll try While to we munch on treats. some grindage. Exactly. Weasel. Michael Giovanni, I wanted to uh, say thanks oh, for yeah. listening. Uh, next time, even if you, you have schooled me, as you said, uh, <laughs> come say hi. Um, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm very nice in, in person. Host actually. of the Horror Apocalypse podcast, which is, uh, he just moved into town and he uh, is getting his setup ready, but. Uh, Awesome. You check that one out. Can't uh, wait Rob, to be on it and tell you sometimes there. Rob, how can people reach us other than finding us at a Best Buy? <laughs> well, they can reach, they can find us on Facebook if you search for the Give Me Five podcast. Find you, you can reach Walmart. That, that's right. They can reach us on Twitter and Instagram at Give Me Five Pod. They can email us directly, Give Me Five Podcast at gmail.com. And please, guys, keep those reviews coming in. We love seeing them. We love hearing about what you like, what you don't like. Send us your list. Send us your top fives. We'll be more than happy to include them in the episodes. Also, we have a store. You can find all of your sweet Give Me Five swag at GiveMeFivePodcast.Threadless.com. And we do have that G.I. Joe design, that G.I. Joe theme design up on the shop. Very well done, Greg. It has been shipped. It's on its way. Excellent. Thanks for listening. Good morning, good afternoon, and I have the power. Speaking of murderous hobos, you gentlemen got my message today. <laughs> I did. Yeah, we have a small theater here that's uh, uh, just a, r- a really good time. And uh, Tuesday, uh, they're showing Hobo with a Shotgun. Ah, the Rutger so, Hauer uh, Grindhouse mm-hmm. flick. Yep. Yes. Might have excellent, to make that. Excellent movie. I unfortunately won't be able to go because I'm on call on Tuesdays. Just in case a real hobo with a shotgun strikes, Rob needs to be there to, <laughs> that's right. to pick up the is, pieces. No, yep, that's to pick up the pieces. Factually accurate. We have lost Jimmy. Lose Jimmy. <laughs> Did we lose Jimmy? Jimmy? I see Jimmy's map location. Loosely oh. represented. Jimmy. I am here. Uh, terror needs to be fed. Just give me one second. I apologize. Okay. Speaking of ancient cults and forbidden lore, Jimmy's terrier, mm-hmm. everybody. He is a majestic creature. I gotta pee so bad.